Hi, I'm Dan Ashley, the evening news anchor for ABC7 News in San Francisco, and I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe, healthy, and comfortable during these very challenging times. I am also a proud board member of the Commonwealth Club, one of our most important Bay Area institutions. The club has been hosting wonderful events with exciting speakers and topics in the Bay Area for over a century. In times of crisis, good information and strong connections in our community are especially important. The club needs your support to continue its shelter-at-home programming. Please make a tax-deductible donation to the club now by texting the word DONATE to 329-4231 or visit the Commonwealth Club website, commonwealthclub.org. I want to personally thank you for supporting one of our community's truly great organizations. I'll see you on ABC 7 News and at the Commonwealth Club. Stay safe. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Chesa Boudin, San Francisco District Attorney. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Ayanna Presley, Representative for Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. We're here to talk about the future of police reform and how we can protect the people most impacted by injustice in America. Thank you for joining me this evening, Congresswoman Presley. I'm going to call you Ayana if that's all right. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't our first time speaking, you know, so I, you know, consider you a friend and, and a, you know, a great partner in this work, and I'm delighted to join you this evening. Likewise, and one of these days we'll get to do it in person. But for now, coast-to-coast virtual encounters are the order of the day. I'd like to kick it off, Ayana, um, with a question about something that you and I share, something we have in common. We both come to this work with a very personal understanding of the real pain and generational trauma that our criminal legal system and mass incarceration crisis has inflicted on families and on entire communities. Can you please share a bit about how your personal experience has inspired you and the approach you take on this work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first I just wanna say that uh, I would like to think that both of our being in the roles that we're in really does speak to the power of representation, uh, the power of lived experience, It's so important in these positions that we have a diversity of lived experience, perspective, opinion, and thought. And that is not for sort of contrived moments of kumbaya so that we can say how progressive and diverse and inclusive we are. It's because it directly shapes and informs what questions are asked, informed by those lived experiences. And so, you know, for me as the child of an incarcerated parent, formerly incarcerated parent, and and now uh, being married to someone, my partner, like my father, was also involved in the criminal legal system. And the fact that I'm married to a Black man, and that is his story, a part of his story, and that my father is a Black man, and that is a part of his story, um, you know, neither are anomalies. And in fact, uh, it's very common. And that does speak to the systemic and pervasive nature of mass incarceration. With my father specifically, my father experienced great childhood trauma, many destabilizing factors. Um, His mother uh, died uh, early. Uh, He and his siblings uh, grew up in um, a colored orphanage. Um, That was what it was called at the time. And uh, my father, he uh, sought ways with which to to soothe his traumas and that was substance use. And so my father committed crimes to support that addiction, that disease. My father was no criminal. But society says something otherwise because we do criminalize substance use. And so my father cycled in and out of the criminal legal system for some 14 years. It was very destabilizing. I felt um, I missed him uh, terribly. I resented him at times. There was a lot of work that we've done um, over the last decade plus um, to, to build a relationship. And I'm very proud to say that, you know, six years ago, he walked me down the aisle and, and gave me away to the love of my life. And so I think ours is a story of redemption and forgiveness. Um, But also my father is someone who attained two advanced degrees while he was incarcerated, uh, went on to become a professor of journalism and a published author. 
and I'm very proud of him. I do not believe my father should ever have been incarcerated. My father deserved culturally competent, on-demand, substance use treatment, um, not to cycle in and out of the criminal legal system. You know, uh, social problems and crimes don't go to jail, people do, and their families along with them. And so it's that those lived experiences and that lens that um, informs my work and you know compels me to be um, aspirational and vigilant in dismantling uh, mass incarceration. But I'm not alone in that. <laughs> I was inspired by by your story as well and um, your childhood and how it informed the work for you. Um, my mother often, may she rest in peace and power, uh, said that. Um, you know, your job is what pays the bills, but your work with a capital W is the work uh, of the upliftment, the betterment, and the advancement of community. And so you've been doing that work with a capital W. Uh, and so how do you come to that work? And why do you think it's important to have district attorneys that have seen or experienced firsthand the impact, the trauma that can be inflicted by our criminal legal system? We do have a lot in common just listening to you describe your family and your upbringing. Obviously, lots of differences in our experiences, but that that firsthand experience of the pain that parental incarceration inflicts on the children left behind, on the families and communities torn apart. Um, I think it's something that's all too often missing from district attorney's offices and even from police departments. And there's this tendency in offices that focus on prosecution to dehumanize and to otherize and to reduce individuals who may have committed crimes, who may have caused harm in their communities to nothing more than that harm, to no past, no future, but just the crime they're charged with. And it's a really destructive cycle that otherizes human beings, that has for generations torn families and communities apart, and has actually contributed to a cycle, an intergenerational cycle of incarceration. My experience growing up with both of my parents incarcerated, my mother did 22 years before she came home. My father is still incarcerated, having served now nearly 39 years. That experience going through steel gates and metal detectors, just to be able to give my parents a hug, uh, is something that I still live with. I mean, my father is still incarcerated, exposed to COVID-19. Somebody in his prison died of COVID-19. The person in the cell next to my father was evacuated with COVID-19. And so when I make difficult decisions about how we want to resolve a case or how we want to charge a case or whether we want to release somebody from custody who's presumed innocent pre-trial, I have to be thoughtful about those decisions. I have to think about the people we have accused of crimes in my office as three-dimensional complicated human beings. And I have to always remember the human potential, the potential for change. I have to remember that almost everybody who gets arrested will at some point be released. And we need to think about solutions rather than simply relying on incarceration as a first resort. My experience as a public defender for years also has helped me see the system from a different perspective than your tr traditional prosecutor. And I think it's helped me be more effective in strategizing solutions to difficult cases. It's helped me focus on understanding the root causes of crime and trying to get at solutions that actually prevent crime, that heal victims, rather than simply throwing more and more money at this inhuman system of Cajun. Now, speaking of solutions, Last fall, Ayana, you introduced the People's Justice Guarantee. It was a bold and overarching legislative framework to transform the U.S. criminal legal system. Your bill also emphasized the need for a people's process to ensure that the communities most impacted by the policies of mass incarceration and the war on drugs are engaged in pushing forward solutions to dismantle and replace it. Can you tell us about your people's justice guarantee and why it is so important to have meaningful community involvement and voices of those impacted when crafting substantive police reform? Yeah, um, 
I know we have to keep this going. I have so many thoughts about what you just said. So I just want to first just receive and hold space for that, which you shared and just say, I'm just so glad you are where you are. And when I think about um, the work that you're doing and my um, People's Justice Guarantee, you know, people will often refer to us as being radical. But Angela Davis reminds us that to be radical is just to get to the root of something. And so um, I so appreciate um, your willingness to be radical uh, in this work and also the intersectional lens that you bring to the work. Um, you know, community trust and relationship is just truly critical at every level of government. And, you know, one of the ways that I seek to, to foster uh, that trust is through intentional engagement of community. The People's Justice Guarantee Resolution, or the People's Justice Guarantee, rather, is a, a radical reimagining of our criminal legal system, uh, which calls for the um, decriminalizing of, of poverty, of homelessness, of of mental illness, of substance use, and is centered in these principles of, of safety and, and dignity and, and shared power, uh, to name a few. But the, the thing that I'm most excited about with the People's Justice Guarantee is that there was a robust people's process. I'm a firm believer that the people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power driving and informing the policymaking. And so we've been very intentional about engaging those closest to the pain to directly inform and to shape the people's justice guarantee. And then the many pieces of legislation um, that, we have, that we have introduced underneath that umbrella, our end push out act, a bill to, um, to abolish the death penalty, um, to name a few. You know, as a DA, you have moved rapidly to advocate for police reforms, you know, well before sort of this tipping point, something that's all too rare to see in a prosecutor. And as one of the leaders of a new and very exciting wave of progressive district attorneys, can you speak just to some of the policies that you have enacted early on in your tenure? And what are some of the biggest obstacles to implementing changes at the local level to holding police accountable? You know, it's like I really just policy is my love language. So I want you to just unpack that and let, let's sit there. I've been talking about how we're in this midst of a culture shift. Um, and then we need to see a power shift. And the only receipts that are going to matter are law change. And then what we see codified in our budgets. So talk to me about policy a little bit. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> like you, I, I love policy. And it's really, you know, as they say, where the rubber meets the road in terms of the work we do, we can, we can have ideas, we can listen to community and then the question is, how do we implement and how do we effectuate change in a way that's lasting? And the way we do that is through policy changes. And policy can inform, uh, it can inform culture, it can help to shape culture, and it's a critical part of what we do. And, you know, I've been in office a little over seven months, and we've been working as hard and as fast as we can because there is no shortage of opportunity in the criminal legal system for urgently needed change. So we are constantly trying to roll out new policies, and many of them are aimed at building trust, at building trust between communities that are impacted by mass incarceration and by crime and law enforcement. We know, and if we didn't know it, if people weren't paying attention in the last couple of months, watching the whole country and the whole world rise up and demand change and demand uh, that Black Lives Matter and that they begin to matter and that we treat them like they matter, Everybody who wasn't paying attention, I think, now realizes we have to build trust. And I think prosecutors play a huge role in that. So I'll give you a few of the policies that we've implemented aimed at reforming our criminal legal system, aimed at building trust, and um, aimed at increasing transparency and accountability with the folks on the front lines, the, the police who are making arrests and who are interacting with the public every day. One thing we've done is to implement a policy that would provide victims compensation for victims of police violence. The current California Victim Compensation Board procedure almost guarantees that people who are victims of police violence, whether it be a, a shooting and a killing, or whether it simply be the kinds of violence that we've seen in response to protests all over the country where police beat someone or tear gas someone in the face, those folks are denied systematically access to the same benefits that victims of other crime would receive. And so our office stepped up and changed our policy so that we will now pay for funeral costs. We will pay for um, and, and connect people with uh, therapy or mental health trauma services the same way we would 
with any other victim of any other crime. Another thing we've done to ensure that we are not complicit in covering up or excusing police excessive force is we've implemented a policy that before we charge a case that involves a resisting arrest or an assault on an officer charge, we must review body-worn camera footage or other available independent evidence. I want to be clear about why we did that. Of course, we know that there are cases where people resist arrest or assault police, and we will continue to prosecute those cases. But we also know that when police do use excessive force, the police report doesn't say, I used excessive force, I beat the person up for no reason. The police reports, even in cases like George Floyd's, the police reports make it sound like the person was resisting arrest or was assaulting the officer. And the only way we can be sure that we are not complicit in covering up police misconduct is if we look at all available evidence before we decide whether and what charges to file. Similarly, we implemented a policy of going through the ranks of police officers in San Francisco and identifying officers who have such a serious history of misconduct that their particular investigations, their particular testimony is something that we have reason to distrust. And in those instances, we will not call those officers. We will not file charges that depend on their testimony. We've also strengthened our independent investigation bureau, uh, the team that investigates police use of force and police shootings. And we've um, introduced legislation at the local level that would prevent San Francisco from ever hiring a police officer or a sheriff's deputy if they have a history of serious misconduct in a prior location. We don't want to hire people from Vallejo or from Sacramento if in those cities they use excessive force or if they lied in their police reports. We don't want them wearing uniforms, carrying guns, and making arrests on our streets. We want the public to know that we hold our law enforcement officials and officers to a very high standard, that they can trust the people they're interacting with, the people who are testifying in our courtrooms to have the highest levels of integrity. Now, those are just a few of the things that we've done. Um, I could spend all day talking about... Yeah, I'd love to build on some of that. And I, and I don't want to filibuster, but I do want to just go... <laughs> I want to go back to my, my people's justice uh, um, a guarantee just for one second, because I want to pick up on some of what you were offering there. And I mentioned that the people's justice guarantee is rooted in these, these principles of, um, of equality and safety and dignity. Um, and I wanted to just pick up on what you were saying. Um, it's hard not to think and think about what's happening on the ground in Portland right now. And, you know, one of the things that we really underscore in the people's justice guarantee is for the elimination of surplus military grade weapons and billions of dollars of equipment being offloaded to police departments. You know, we have literally equipped our police officers as if they are going to war. And that has got to stop. And, you know, the safety component is about everything from what you were raising and your very legitimate, incredible fears for your father, um, which we've had to fight to center the humanity and the dignity and the safety of our loved ones because people do um, dehumanize them, right? And so that's why dignity is one of the principles of the People's Justice Guarantee because it's so important that humanity, dignity, and health are codified in our laws. And until that happens, our job really is not done. And these systems and policies have really been crafted to intentionally inflict harm. And we must, with that same intention and with that same precision, legislate for the dignity, the humanity, the healing, and the justice of all people. And that includes our incarcerated loved ones. You know, in the midst of this pandemic, when people think of our most vulnerable, they immediately go to uh, those in nursing homes, which is true, and those experiencing homelessness but they are often completely forgetting about um, our loved ones that are behind the wall. And so I'm just so grateful for um, your advocacy and your partnership on that and so many other issues. Thank you. And I know you've been a constant leader on this issue of police accountability and police reform, even well before it was an in vogue concept or part of the national conversation. And I want to um, focus for a minute 
on this term that we've heard a lot in the last few months, defund the police. And, you know, it's a movement that's taken off. I think it started a critical conversation about the ways in which our country has responded to some of our most complex challenges and how we've used police as a one-size-fits-all frontline response, no matter whether we're dealing with an armed robbery in progress or someone having a mental health breakdown. And we've done that at a tremendous fiscal cost that has come at the expense of other investments in our communities. Um, in San Francisco, for example, our police budget is over $700 million a year. And in 2019, the department handled about a million calls for service. Only 5% were for violent crimes in progress. So many of the calls that police who were paid about 50% more than our teachers starting salary um, that police are responding to are not crimes, but they're drug overdoses, their mental health crises, their disputes between neighbors. And so I want to ask you uh, about this movement and what it means to you and why you think it's important in this moment that we find ourselves. In. Yeah, well, you know, first the defund movement, uh, you know, it isn't new. You know, I think of, of, of uh, Dr. King talking about the three evils being militarism, racism, and poverty. Um, you know, this isn't new. The Black Lives Matter movement is not new. Um, and really what this is about is just investment in communities that have historically been under-resourced, over-policed, over-surveyed, and not only under-resourced, but divested from. And, you know, I, I hearken back to my time on the Boston City Council before I was elected to Congress, where I served for eight years. And I often had to make these unjust choices. You know, I remember voting down several budgets because I refused to decide between a paraprofessional in a classroom, um, you know, a school nurse um, or a school police officer. You know, we know what works to foster, you know, healthier learning communities, safer learning communities, and to support the readiness of our children learning. It's an investment in, in social workers, in psychotherapists, in trauma-informed learning communities, in restorative justice practices. We know what works, we just don't fund it. And so when I think about, you know, sitting on that Boston City Council and voting down those budgets, because how could I vote to for more school police when every student didn't even have access to a school nurse? Uh, and so it really is about investment uh, in community. It's about uh, a reallocation of funds. Uh, really, I would consider it a refund because we have been over-investing in policing and militarization. And again, we know what works. We just have not funded it. No, that's right. And, and I think a lot of times, the especially folks on the far right, are trying to conflate defund with abolition. And those are different conversations. We can talk about abolition, and that's a conversation that you know people can have. We can think about that as a theoretical concept for some people as a goal to move towards a society where we don't need police or where we don't need police to carry guns. But the conversation we're having today at a national level is, frankly, a conversation that I think elected officials and the public should have every single budget cycle with every single agency. Is this the most effective way to use tax dollars? Are we getting a good return on our investment? Is there some other way we could spend this money that would make us safer or do a better job achieving the goals that we have? When you talk about um, public safety, policing and prosecution and incarceration are tremendously expensive and failed responses to the problems that our communities are dealing with. And I think it's- Absolutely. And it just I would just say like, you know, our first responders have a role to play in society, but they need to play a role in every part of our society. And so the examples that you cited earlier, if, if someone is having a, a is, is battling mental illness and is, um, is not doing well, why would we be deploying an officer to their home? We should be deploying a mental health clinician. Exactly. If you look at the young lady, Grace, in Michigan, who didn't do her online homework and what's happened there. If students are having a conflict at school, you know, officers don't even want to be deployed there. Again, we know what works. It is about restorative justice, trauma-informed communities, educators that are trained to ask a student, um, not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. So it, it's, it is time for a paradigm shift and a radical reimagining 
um, on every on every front, including our budgets. And, and so, speaking of of that paradigm shift, you know, policing is of course one facet of this broader system that has oppressed black and brown people. We say for generations, but really, you mentioned Angela Davis. She and Michelle Alexander and others have traced in their academic writing how this system can be traced all the way back to slavery. And we see the manifestations of deeply entrenched institutional racism in not just criminal justice, but also housing and employment and healthcare and education and so many other areas of life that push people into the criminal justice system. I mentioned healthcare, and I want to pivot for a moment and ask you about the COVID-19 pandemic. I have often heard you refer to this public health crisis as one that has unveiled so many of our country's most deeply entrenched inequities and disparities. Over the course of the last several months, you have been a constant leading voice pushing for data on how this virus is impacting our most vulnerable, including those who are incarcerated. Can you share with us a bit uh, about your perspective on how COVID-19 has um, been something that's uniquely impacted and interacted with our system of mass incarceration? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, as I said, with the People's Justice uh, Guarantee, you know, we had a robust people's process. And so in doing that process, we remain connected to so many of these families. And that's on purpose, that we remain acutely uncomfortable in proximity to the herd. And so, so many loved ones were reaching out to us um, early in this pandemic with real trauma and fear and concern for their loved ones. You know, we find ourselves managing a crisis within a crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic did not create these inequities. It's just laid bare them and it has uh, further exacerbated them, but they've existed for generations. And so we need to make sure that people have the support they need now and make sure we address the structural inequities and disparities that have left certain communities particularly at risk. And, you know, my district in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the Massachusetts 7th um, has, the Mass 7th has been hit hardest because of unequal access to uh, healthcare. This is a district 53% people of color, some of the highest rates. Um, and also one in four children in my district have an incarcerated loved one, right? So we're in the midst of yet another spike in COVID-19 across the country. And so any efforts to address those spikes must include a focus for our loved ones that are behind the wall, our neighbors behind the wall, our nation's jails and hospitals, our nations and our nation's jails and prisons are not hospitals. What they are are petri dishes for the COVID spread. And we continue to hear from incarcerated individuals as well as prison staff, I wanna underscore that, sounding the alarms on the continued lack of PPE, lack of testing and continued overcrowding that makes physical distancing possible. Uh, they, we, you know, that's why we want NAS, uh, that's why we push for, for decarceration. We know that these are environments that are already, uh, you know, not fit um, and, and overcrowded and unsafe. And so we continue to see millions incarcerated across the country who do not pose a public safety risk. Those that are held in pretrial detention, those that are medically vulnerable. Chelsea, you made the point earlier about people returning home. I, I think, what is the statistic? Something like 95% of those that are in our county jails will be there for three to five months and then returning home. And so this is really um, about benevolence. Um, and this is about, about being decent. And this is about the public health. And so why are we keeping incarcerated when 10% of this population are elderly with underlying conditions? Again, medically vulnerable, pretrial detainees, a pregnant folks, um, and, and again, those with severe underlying conditions. And so instead of using his clemency powers, you know, this administration, if there were ever evidence needed that we are a two America and a two, two Americas and two justice systems, you know, look no further than Roger Stone. Instead of Donald Trump using his clemency powers to protect those most vulnerable, the occupant of this White House is releasing his friends. It is disgusting. So long before this public health crisis hit, I've been calling for a large-scale decarceration effort, again, as outlined in my People's Justice Guarantee. But the COVID-19 pandemic unveiled just how dangerous and appalling these confinement conditions are and the urgency in which we need to act to decarcerate. It is quite frankly a matter of life and death. Public health is public safety, and in this moment, we must prioritize decarceration to save lives and to protect communities before it's too late. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. 
Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. You know, I ran my campaign last year on a platform that focused on some of these issues. I ran my campaign on a platform that promised jail reduction and policies that would end mass incarceration. And I, I ran that campaign that way because I saw firsthand in my own life experience the ways that mass incarceration actually undermines public safety. And we've talked a little bit about that earlier, but I think you're exactly right when you say that the current pandemic of COVID-19 has really made clearer than ever how mass incarceration is a very clear and present danger to public safety. You look at what's happening right now in San Quentin prison, just a few miles away from San Francisco, where I am, the horrendous outbreak that's already cost more than a dozen lives in San Francisco, excuse me, in California state prison. You look at what's happened in jails from Rikers Island to Cook County in Illinois and beyond. The people that live and, as you said, work in jails and prisons are connected to every single community in this country. Every single community. We have over a million people that work in prisons across the country, correctional officers, healthcare workers, counselors, um, we cannot simply pretend that prisons and jails don't exist. We cannot continue to incarcerate at the rates with the overcrowding, with the negligence, with the lack of medical care that we have done for decades. Um, in San Francisco, when the COVID crisis was declared as a state of emergency, we began working very quickly to decarcerate our jail. We worked with other stakeholders, most importantly, the director of jail medical services, to figure out what a safe target population would be, where the jail medical team could create social distance, could adequately attend to all the needs of people who were incarcerated. And over the course of a month or two, we reduced the jail population from peak to trough by about 45%. In the process, we identified people who didn't need to be incarcerated in the first place, people who are elderly and vulnerable and low risk, people with very low level offenses, people who were just a few weeks or months away from scheduled release dates anyway, people we could help get services and support. We found, you mentioned a moment ago, people who are pregnant. We found a woman in San Francisco County Jail with a high risk pregnancy and no criminal history serving time on a misdemeanor conviction. Instead of keeping her in the jail in the midst of a public health pandemic, we were able to place her into a prenatal facility that gave her and her child the care that they need. A lot of people said when we started decarcerating, when we started reducing people, releasing people that we didn't think needed to be in our jail, a lot of folks said, you know, the, the fear mongering that we heard from the police unions and others was crime rates are going to go way up. But instead, we've seen the opposite. We've seen crime in San Francisco during the COVID-19 pandemic drop by about 30 percent. It is a significant, really historic decrease in crime at a time when we're releasing people from jail in numbers that we haven't done before. And I think what that tells us is something that you and I know from our own life experience. Incarceration is not the secret to public safety. Reentry, supportive services, community engagement, those are the things that help people who we release from our jails stay out of trouble. Um, you know, but sadly, we have this commitment from police unions and from far too many governors around the country to ongoing incarceration. And, um, you know, we have a unit in my office that's working to get people out of state prison as well, people who were sentenced from San Francisco, um, people in some instances who have served decades. Um, we were reviewing the case of a man the other day who has 17 different prescription medications, who's been in custody as long as I've been alive, and who presents absolutely no risk to public safety. According to the State Department of Corrections in California, there are in the neighborhood of 50,000 people in prison in California who are low risk. 50,000. The cost, human and economic, is absolutely staggering. And in the context where we have people dying 
in prison of COVID-19 every day, we have to do more faster. So speaking of that, I understand that you introduced legislation with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from Michigan to push for decarceration as a public health issue. Can you tell us a little bit about this bill and why decarceration would be a key step to mitigating the spread of COVID-19? Sure, you know, Chelsea, it is, um, it's hard to believe that we have to actually legislate that people see the humanity in people. You know, when I think about um, bills that were introduced to stop the shackling of pregnant incarcerated women, why are they incarcerated? I introduced legislation under the People's Justice Guarantee, the justice for incarcerated moms. Again, given how destabilizing this is for the family and that social crimes, social uh, crimes um, or social problems and crimes don't go to jail, but people do and whole families. And so here we find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic, I'm still having to, to legislate for people to see the humanity in people. And so our bill is based on the belief that involvement in the criminal legal system shouldn't be a death sentence. It should not be a death sentence due to COVID-19. So long before this public health crisis hit, again, I had been calling for large-scale decarceration as outlined in my People's Justice Guarantee. And again, the COVID-19 pandemic unveiled just how dangerous and appalling these confinement conditions are and the urgency in which we need to act to decarcerate. Again, it's, it's a matter of life and death. And so our bill, the bill that I introduced with Representative Rashida Tlaib out of Michigan, our bill is to dismantle mass incarceration for public health. And it would ensure that states and local municipalities receive federal funds, um, or those municipalities that are receiving federal funds are decarcerating those who do not pose a public safety risk. Um, like those that we enumerated earlier, pretrial uh, detainees, those that are medically vulnerable, um, pregnant uh, individuals, seniors, and those with severe underlying conditions. So, you know, my congressional efforts to push for decarceration have largely been focused on the Trump administration and state governors. Um, they keep us very busy. But I, wonder, I wonder why. Yeah, I can't figure that out. Very busy. Um, but DAs, too, can play a role in ensuring that we are, are just quickly and safely reducing jail populations, as you've already alluded to, and we're so grateful um, for your example. So, you know, you have a role to play as well in quickly and safely reducing jail populations to mitigate the COVID-19 spread in our jails and prisons. And you've really risen to this challenge. You've been pushing to decarcerate the jails in San Francisco. Can you speak to your most recent advocacy around the crisis at San Quentin State Prison? I understand, um, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, there's been a devastating outbreak there that has led to more than half of individuals incarcerated there contracting COVID at some point. How have you worked to reduce the jail population in San Francisco? And what more can be done at the local level to stop these outbreaks? I'm, I'm setting you up as the, as the model. We wanna see other people you know, follow um, your practices there. So what have you been doing? What's been working? There's a lot of pressure when you frame it that way, but I'm, we're doing our best. And <laughs> I know that there's always more work we could do in this space. So let me talk a little bit about the context, and then I'll answer the question about what we've done. You know, for folks who aren't familiar, as district attorney, the, the main focus of my work is in the pretrial phase. It's when people get arrested, we're looking at, do we charge them? If so, with what? Do we ask the court to release them uh, or do we ask the court to hold them in custody, even though they're presumed innocent? Um, and, and then once a case is resolved, we're figuring out what an appropriate sentence is and asking the court to impose that sentence. And when people are sent to state prison, most of our work is, is traditionally done. Most of the time, district attorneys, you know, they move on to the next case. But California has a, a relatively new law that allows district attorneys to revisit cases that were sentenced out of their office and to ask the court to resentence someone to a, a lower term uh, if there's an appropriate reason for doing so. It's a penal code provision 1170D for all of you uh, law nerds out there. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, what we saw in the beginning was California did a great job um, while states like New York were dealing with the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
But then the Department of Corrections here in California, CDCR, as its acronym goes, made a couple of really horrific mistakes. And one of the things they did was they refused outside offers from scientists and the medical community to offer free testing to people incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison and the staff that worked there. And then the next thing they did, which was even more uh, inexcusable, was they transferred people from a different prison that had had a COVID-19 outbreak to San Quentin without testing them. San Quentin didn't have any cases of COVID-19, kind of miraculous, until they transferred people from, I believe it was Chino State Prison. And once those people from Chino arrived in San Quentin, COVID spread like wildfire. And, and I think the last count is we have about a dozen individuals who passed away from San Quentin. We have approximately 50% of the entire prison population that has tested positive for COVID-19. We have hundreds of staff that work in the prison that have tested positive. And so I've joined forces with many state legislators, with other elected officials, uh, with community leaders, with formerly incarcerated people to call on the governor to release more people from San Quentin. And I've also been working closely with the Department of Corrections to try to get access to the paperwork and the files that my team needs so we can review every single case of every single person who is in that prison out of San Francisco County. And we've already resentenced somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen people. We've brought people home, people who we've identified as low risk, people who have served their time, people who've changed and who are no longer the same person who committed a crime 20 or 30 years ago. And in every one of those cases, our team is working to come up with a reentry plan to make sure that someone who is released has a place to go, a community to keep them safe and keep uh, their reentry on track, and also to reach out to the victims in the crime they committed to ensure we're giving those victims a voice and including them in this conversation. Um, so that's a little bit about what we've been doing. And I think it's uh, really imperative that you know, we have the kinds of incentives that your bill would create for local governments and state governments to go further. You know, there's this um, there's this tendency, I think, in, in the criminal justice space to kind of govern out of fear. And, you know, we've seen time and time again that people, whether it's governors or district attorneys uh, or mayors, are basically making decisions um that are not based on data or empirical evidence, but rather based on the sort of worst case scenario, the outlier crime. And if you're thinking about it from that standpoint, if you're worried that somebody who your office releases from jail or prison um, is going to commit a serious crime, then you will never release anybody from jail or prison. And in the process, you will not only contribute to mass incarceration, but you will, I think, also um, make us less safe in the ways we've talked about tonight. And so one of the things that I've been challenging, uh, challenged by, and I, I wonder if you have thoughts about this, is how we can tell stories, tell success stories, tell the stories that humanize people who um, don't usually make the headlines, right? You release somebody from prison or from jail, and they go to work, and they take care of their kids, and they... Um, live their lives in a normal way, it's never going to be in the news. And yet, even if it's just one in a thousand cases where they get arrested or they violate the terms of their parole, that's what's going to capture the headlines. That's the st statistic that's going to get repeated by the police unions. And I wonder if you have thoughts about ways we can uplift and um, kind of change the narrative when it comes to the uh, dialogue about public policy and make sure that it's rooted in empirical evidence rather than fear-mongering? Well, first, I just have to give credit where credit is due and um, just say that, you know, you prove that decarceration is possible and it has everything to do with having people in these positions who have, who possess the political will and the courage to do it. And I'm very fortunate um, to have you as a partner in this work, but also my own Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins. You two are uh, certainly cut uh, from the same uh, cloth and neither of you uh, govern from a place of fear. 
Um, and so, but, but so much of this ultimately does come down to uh, the political will and courage. And as for um, the power of storytelling, I'm certainly a believer in that. And it's been my experience that whenever we have been able to um, actualize change and move people on an issue, that it was not about statistics. It was about centering the voices of those um, most closely impacted by an issue and uh, showing them the people behind those numbers. I think that there are many uh, vehicles and platforms that are telling that story. We have to use our platforms to amplify those. Um, but I'm also, you know, reminded of the words of, you know, one of uh, my favorite activists out of Ferguson, who said that it's, it's not true that the marginalized and oppressed are voiceless, it's that they're unheard. And so people are speaking, but it's just, it's up to us to create the space and hold it and again, to use our platforms to amplify uh, those stories and those voices. So, but I do have a question for you, you know, as we've been discussing, our nation has been in the midst of a pandemic as a national movement has arisen demanding that we examine the nation's systemic racism. So thinking about this unique moment in time, where do we go from here? You know, what changes do you foresee happening in the future as a result of this, of this national reckoning? It really is a unique moment, uh, in many ways unprecedented. And I think out of any crisis emerges opportunity. And one of the challenges for all of us as elected officials, as policymakers, but also just everyday citizens and residents of this country is to identify and create silver linings out of the crisis, to find those opportunities. Um, you know, I think the protests have shown um, the depth of discrimination and racism and abuse in our systems. I think they've kind of pulled back the curtain so people who weren't otherwise paying attention, who maybe hadn't had the life experience that you and I had uh, with visiting jails and prisons and seeing people who we loved locked up are now paying more attention. And I think that combined with the way that COVID-19 has forced a transformation of daily life and professional life have, you know, in some ways surprisingly brought this tremendous national attention to two issues that I campaigned on just a few months ago, right? Just in 2019, police accountability on the one hand and ending mass incarceration on the other. Uh, so for me, it's been really refreshing to see people paying attention to issues that I've worked on my whole life. Uh, of course, the context of George Floyd getting killed and Breonna Taylor and so many others, uh, the context of COVID-19 devastating our families and communities is really costly. It's really uh, damaging and it's something that we will not recover from quickly. But I think if people start paying attention to things like the fact that 75% of people taken to San Francisco County Jail are either mentally ill, drug addicted, or both, that will be a silver lining. That will help us invest resources in things that are not just promoting equity, that are not just investing in Black communities for a change instead of divesting, but which will also do far more to keep us safe than militarizing our uh, police departments. Now, I know we could talk about this all day, Ayana, but um, we've got a lot of questions from the audience. I want to make sure we have time to, as you said, amplify some of those voices as well. So let's do it. Um, let's see. We have a question that is for both of us from Sarah on YouTube. And Sarah is asking, how do we win the hearts and minds of folks who are put off by the idea of major police reform? Do you want to start? Sure. Um you know, again, I think the, the crux of that question is just, um, so there's two things when I think of, when I think of uh, reform. Um, the first is the bill that I've introduced with Representative Justin Amash, and that's the unqualified immunity. Um, and, and there are some that don't understand that push, but if we really do believe that black lives matter, then that means justice for the black lives that we've been robbed of matters. And for as long as there's qualified immunity, the set of protections created out of the Supreme Court, codified and strengthened in court case after court case. I mean, honestly, there'll never be real justice because that would mean that Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Tony McDade would still be with us. But there must be accountability. And there has not been accountability because of qualified immunity. Um, 
And so, you know, how I get people to understand that is just making that point. If you believe that Black Lives Matter, then justice for those lives you've been robbed of matters. Um, we have got to do away with these protections and in qualified immunity. When it comes to the defund movement, which would be the other sort of topical issue in the space of, um, of reform, you know, again, I support it because we cannot allow the narrative of that movement to be co-opted. This is really about investing in community. And I do believe that where our money goes is a statement of our values. And it's clear that our budgets have not valued black lives. And so the focus is on what we need to invest in and refund in order to create a more just society and to ensure that black lives matter. You know, many years ago, I was in a fellowship program and I asked my professor, why are people so averse to change? And he said to me, it's not that people are resistant or averse to change, they're averse to loss. So I keep asking myself in these reform conversations, what do people fear that they will lose? And how do I speak to that? So again, this is not the loss of something. This is the reimagining, the reconstructing of something to create a more just society. And our constituents have every right to be going after the police department line item when they have failed to provide justice when it comes to food, housing, and education. And, and, then, and, and then the response is that our police departments are in the streets and tanks. So the last thing I would just say is that we know that there's unrest in our streets because there is unrest in the lives of many people, especially Black Americans. And these most recent consecutive murders of Black Americans at the hands of those sworn to protect and to serve, operating with callous uh, impunity and disregard for human life, for, for Black lives, that has been the tipping point. But that is not the only reason why folks are in the street and why there is unrest. It has everything to do with the under-resourcing and the divesting. So. That's the case that I, I try to make. Sometimes I do it with brevity and eloquence. <laughs> um, well, and sometimes with verbose passion. But that's <laughs> the argument that I seek to make. And, uh, and I'm grateful for the activists. You know, again, the defund movement is not new. And it just speaks to this unprecedented moment that we're in with this multi-generational, multi-racial, sustained movement that this is now a national discussion. And it's a credit to the activists who have been pushing this for a long time. Uh, I think you've answered the question well and thoroughly. And so I know it was for both of us, but I'm gonna leave it with what you said, cause I don't think I could do better. I think you addressed it head on. And, well, well, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to compete on that front. Definitely not. Yeah, no. All right. So the next one is actually for you. It's from Tara, also on YouTube. And she wants to know how politicians can enact immediate reform, say with police budgets, while creating more systemic change in our uh, incarceration system. That is, how do we balance short term and long term change? Right. It, it is not um, or it's 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 not it's and it has to be and or. So we have to be working in parallel tracks. So that's exactly why. You know, Chess and I can be doing the work of making sure that while people are incarcerated, you know, many people who we believe should not be there, that they are being treated with dignity. That's why we do need to pass things like the People's Justice Guarantee Resolution. It's why we need more DAs doing uh, the good work and modeling uh, what Chess is doing. It's why we continue to push for uh, decarceration in general, but decarceration in the midst of this pandemic, um, while at the same time, um, seeking to advance other things, um, like my In Push Out Act to address the criminalization of Black girls in our schools, who are six times more likely, at least in my district, and in, in other states, it's, it's even higher to be disciplined, suspended, or expelled because of the criminalization of how we wear our hair, what our bodies look like, simply how we show up in the world. So there's more girls just as involved than ever before, um, and there's more women incarcerated uh, than ever before. And so that's how I seek to sort of address this two-track you know, to, to, to disrupt the pathway from school to confinement is one example with my In Push Out Act, while also um, introducing legislation to dismantle mass incarceration for public health, uh, legislation to end qualified immunity, and uh, in pushing, again, um, all the other reforms that Chess and I have been speaking to this evening. It's, it's you know, it's not a matter of um, or, it has to be and. That's right. And, and I know the question was for you, but I'm going to take the, the moderator's prerogative and I'm going to weigh in on this, too, because it's an important question. And I think it's one that probably has a slightly different answer for folks like you who are 
writing the laws and in the legislative process. And for, you know, folks like, like me in a district attorney's office where, you know, I have about 300 staff, 320 some staff in the office, and we have over 5,000 open cases. There, there are literally infinite ways that I could be spending my time in the short term. There is always one more case that I could weigh in on, one more lawyer that I could work with, uh, you know, w- one more local issue that I could attend to that's happening right now in this moment. And so it would be really, really easy for me to lose sight of and forget about longer term change. On the other hand, we know how broken the system is. We know how deeply entrenched these problems are. We just spent the last hour talking about it. So it'd be really easy for me to put aside all the current cases we've got and all the day-to-day problems of running a a big government agency and just focus on long-term policy change and institutional change. Neither one of those is going to work, right? We have to remember the relationship the constant interplay and dialogue between what we do today in the cases that we are handling, in the decisions that we make around community interactions and around all of the little things that we do, the the sentencing commission that I sat on for two hours this morning. And you know, all of those little decisions in the short term have really important consequences in terms of our ability to achieve the longer term goals. So I just try to remember that there is a dialectic between short and long term. And if we ignore that or forget about it or lose sight of it, it is so easy to get lost in the moment. And you end up, uh, if you'll forgive the the uh, literary reference, uh, a little bit like Holton Caulfield, uh, the catcher in the rye, just trying to catch each individual, whether it's a victim or whether it's a, a defendant, you know, just trying to catch each one and make sure that nothing goes wrong. And you could do that all day, every day in this system and never, ever think about the big picture or the long term. And and actually, one more thing, Tara, I do want to say in the immediate short term, it's just budgets. You know, it's easy for me to just make, to to think everything on the federal level, but having worked on the city council for eight years, you know, that is a place to start right away. Federal, state, municipal budgets. You know, uh, Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee recently introduced an amendment to strike 10% from our military budgets. I mean, it's things like that, you know, we're going to keep doing our work on the, um, on these legislative bodies. But don't forget the power that our governors and our mayors have with the stroke of a pen to effectuate some of this change right away with our budgets. And that's actually a great segue into the next question, which is from James on YouTube. His question is for me. And he says, you have an inspiring vision for justice reform, but the hardest thing for a leader to change is culture. Can you change the culture of San Francisco police and prosecutors? If so, how? And I think part of it is, um, that's absolutely right. Changing culture is hard. It is slow. It does not happen overnight. You can pass a law, you can implement a policy, but there's an old saying that culture eats policy for breakfast. And if you don't, what's that? Well, you know, it's a real risk in, it's a real risk in all of our, you know, you have a, a, a bureaucratic culture in the police department or in a district attorney's office or in a criminal court. And there's a real risk that no matter what the law says, no matter what the policy is, people just keep doing things the same way they've been doing them. And so, of course, the work that we are doing that I know, Ayana, you're doing every day of trying to craft better laws, fairer laws, is essential. But it alone is not enough. And I think budgets are a critical part of it. We need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to fund the things that we as a society care about. We need to invest in the services and the programs and the people who we want to see succeed. And that means investing in everybody, not just people who look like me. Um, And then the other part of it is remembering that this is a long game. Culture does not change overnight. It cannot be expected to change overnight. And so if people demand or uh, are upset with me or with Ayana because we can't overnight change the culture of this country or change the culture of the police department in San Francisco, an agency that I have no direct authority over, um, people are going to be frustrated, right? So um, one of my friends and mentors before he passed away, it was my former boss, San Francisco public defender, Jeff Adachi. And I just want to tell a brief kind of story about Jeff Adachi. He was a legend in the criminal defense world. He transformed um, not just San Francisco's approach to criminal justice, but really was a a nationally recognized leader for so many of his contributions. 
And he was unique in that he was an elected public defender. Most public defenders in this country are appointed, not elected. And I had a conversation with Jeff uh, just about three weeks before he passed away. And I had just announced that I was running for district attorney. And we were talking a little bit about the challenges of running for office and then of winning and being in office. And for folks who aren't familiar, Jeff Adachi had been a San Francisco public defender pretty much his entire career. And right before he became the elected public defender, he was fired by a new appointed head public defender. They pushed him out of the office and he spent about two years out of the office running to become the elected public defender. And he won that race and he held that office uh, for the next nearly 20 years before he died. But one of the things he told me was that even though he had been a career public defender in the San Francisco office, after he won his first election, after he became the public defender in 2002, it took him about five years to really get the culture of the office to a place that he was proud of. And, and this is an office that he had been part of, that he'd been a leader in. This isn't a hostile takeover. This isn't someone who, you know, like me, grew up with my parents incarcerated, who worked as a public defender, trying to influence culture in a police department. This is someone who already knew every single staff member who had spent 15 years in the office. And it took him five years to transform the culture of that office. So we need to remember this is also a long game. It takes time. Culture doesn't change overnight. Uh, okay, back to you, Ayana. We got a question for you from Lynn on YouTube. It is especially painful to lose uh, Representative John Lewis at this time. How would you encourage young people in particular to learn from his legacy and to fight racism today? Okay, well, let me talk about my mother. Again, may she rest in peace and power. My mother uh, held many jobs um, to, uh, to, to take care of me, uh, raised me alone while my father was uh, in and out of the system. And um, her, her chief sort of um, uh, roles were as a tenants' rights organizer and as a community activist. And she made sure that I knew early on that it was beautiful to be black and I should be proud of that, but that I was being born into a struggle. And it was her expectation that I do my part in that struggle and that the work of justice is a cradle to grave pursuit. And I'll paraphrase, I think it was, um, I think it was a uh, Coretta Scott King who said that justice is earned, uh, I'll paraphrase, you know, every generation. And so what I would say to our young people is that what John Lewis taught me is tenacity. You know, there are so many gains that were made possible because of the sweat equity and the personal sacrifice and the commitment of folks. I mean, if you think about the Montgomery bus boycotts and the freedom rides, the Greensboro sit-ins, these things were six months, seven months, 392 days, um, you know, years. And that work never stopped. Look how, I mean, John Lewis shed blood on a bridge. And then in his lifetime, he had to see the Voting Rights Act gutted. And yet he was never, he never allowed himself to be depleted. He never allowed himself to be defeated. He stayed in the fight because this is a fight that we must be in and that we earn every generation. And so that's what I would say to our, our young people, just know that you are powerful. My mother always told me that, and it was not an easy thing for me to always believe because we were living in the residual aftermath of discriminatory draconian policies, very hurtful things, redlining, um, the failed war on drugs, welfare reform. Uh, we were destabilized by my father's absence and, and the trauma of poverty and um, of sexual violence and substance use and all these things. But my mother made sure I still never lost sight of the fact that we were powerful as a collective, as a community, and that our self-agency and determination is powerful. And so that's just what I would say to our young people. If you want to do the work of justice, just know that that is a lifelong pursuit. That is a lifelong pursuit. And we need you. And we don't have the luxury of growing apathetic or cynical um, because 
Too many people are depending on us. And if you really feel down, give me a call. <laughs> okay. I love I'll it. You stay in this movement. We need you. Careful what you offer. I'm going to call you regularly because I, I, we all need support. We all need support. So unfortunately, we are running out of time and we don't have time for further audience questions. But it is an in-forum tradition to ask all speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Now, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I've been an informed guest before. Uh, so I'll go ahead and I'll give, you, I'll give you 60 seconds to think up your answer while I give mine. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap. That's so my 60-second idea is a really simple one. It's, it's really in the moment. But we, you know, I think about uh, criminals and I think about criminal prosecution all the time as district attorney. And what I would love to do to change the world is to get the criminals out of the White House and put the people back in. Wow. Okay. That was way under 60 seconds. You hit that. You were Simple. ready. Ready. Okay. Done. Let me try to follow your lead. Okay. Um, I'm going to say uh, what would change the world? Ending homelessness. And it is actually possible. Uh, that was the very first uh, bill that we had a hearing on, um, on the Financial Services Committee, a bill to end homelessness. And we learned that that legislation was scored, uh, the amount for it was $13 billion. So the equivalent cost of one military aircraft carrier. I just want to say that, okay? So my what 60 second, what would change the world? End homelessness. Housing is a human right. It's about the political will and the political courage. We can end homelessness for the equivalent cost of one military aircraft carrier. Well, that is a uh, that is a great answer, and it's one that I know would also tremendously enhance public safety as part of the process of changing the world. So, uh, I definitely uh, share that that idea and that vision. Uh, with that, it has been a pleasure to be in conversation today at Inforum, at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley for joining me. We encourage all of you to research police reform in your own communities and welcome your questions and concerns. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. Thank you, stay safe.